Okay. Um. Hello, everyone, and welcome to to the newest episode. Um. Of much to do about the AQ. Um. This will be strange for you if you're watching on YouTube because you won't have seen us actually talking with our faces and everything because we've only been on Spotify and so on uh, previously. Um. I'm Joe Payne. I am um expert to the layman, layman to the expert on the AQ. Um. I'm probably the least capable person on this entire call so i'll mostly be being quiet and listening to significantly more qualified people than myself speaking uh, i'm joined as ever by my uh, colleague and friend dr taylor uh, who is that way introduce yourself thank you for having me again on our podcast <laughs> that you co-present um and we're delighted uh, to be joined today our first guest on the podcast um the the fantastic and highly esteemed elizabeth winkler um don't say you had an introduction of sorts prepared i believe uh yes i do um well first of all elizabeth thank you very much for joining us and giving of your time um mm. on this long distance call um and congratulations on on your book um shakespeare and other heresies um i wanted to share with you just as a kind of an, an opener a review you've probably heard uh and this is by a chap called uh, andre Asiman or Ackerman, I can't really make out the name, but um, he, he describes your book as an extraordinarily brilliant and scholarly work written with an unyielding sleuthing instinct and sparkling with, he says, pleasurably naughty moments. This page turner is mesmerizing. Um, and, and that's the, the, the vibe, if you like, that I got from your book, because um, I think I picked up on it from the Devere Society and I, I pre-ordered it. I didn't, I didn't know you as a journalist. I didn't have any preconceptions other than I knew it would be on the AQ. But um, congratulations on the book. We, we bought several mm. copies from the school library and uh, um, it, it's doing the rounds. Joe, Joe's in the middle of it. I've, I've finished it long since. Yep. Um, and I, I just I just wanted to pick up on, on the fact that the subtitle of the book is um, How Doubting the Bard Became the Biggest Taboo in Literature. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you've got words there that have obvious religious connotations um heresy which is greek for doubt uh choice sorry um doubt and and taboo so my my only question which is kind of a deep dive question i suppose as, a, as an opener is why is it do you think that so many people approach the aq with this almost religious passion yeah it's a good question well thank you for having me on here and i love the quote that you read it's from andre Asiman, who's um he's a novelist known for um most famous for his book, um, Call Me By Your Name, which was adapted to a film with Timothy Chalamet a few years ago. Mm -hmm. He's also a professor of comparative literature in New York. Um, but yes, I did love that he said it's sparkling with naughty moments. And this book is all about being a little bit naughty <laughs> when it comes to Shakespeare. Um, heresy, religious quality of the whole topic. Yes, it's because over the course of the 18th and 19th centuries, Shakespeare was enshrined as essentially an English Christ figure. And that's part of the history that I trace in the book. I wanted to understand for myself why this subject is so absurdly um, emotional for people, why people get so furious about it. And they react when you, when you raise questions about the authorship of 400 year old plays, they react a little bit like the way Victorians in the 19th century reacted if you questioned the divinity of Christ. It's the same kind of highly irrational reaction. And 
to me as a journalist, that was most what was most interesting about this whole subject. Of course, it's fun to try to figure out, you know, the detective story of who might have written the works. And the book does do that. Um, going through the different theories, but but really the thrust is in that subtitle, how this became so taboo. And um, what began to happen, I mean, I think you have to understand the whole the whole history really of, of religious turmoil in Britain um, from the Reformation, the divisions between Catholic and Protestant um, camps. Then, then of course you have civil war in Britain in the, in the 17th century. And, and and Shakespeare emerged after that as a kind of unifying national icon who could bring these disparate groups together under one sort of figure. And in the 18th century, you start to see people um, making pilgrimages to Stratford-upon-Avon, which becomes a kind of English Bethlehem. They throw themselves down at the birthplace, which is, you know, the purported site of his nativity. There's no evidence that he was actually born there, but it becomes this kind of spiritual... Um, place of worship, people cut relics from the local trees, like the pieces of the true cross, they sing odes to divine Shakespeare. Um, there's really a kind of veneration that begins to take place. And the, the playwright George Bernard Shaw referred to it as bardolatry. Mm -hmm. Now Shakespeare scholars know this, this is well documented, nothing about that is controversial. Um, but that's what began to happen. At the end of the 18th century, there was a there's an amazing painting that was done by the artist George Romney, of baby Shakespeare, the infant Shakespeare, in what is essentially a nativity scene as a Christ child. Yeah. It's so extraordinary. It's now in the Folger Shakespeare Library here in Washington, DC. I put I put the picture in my book just because I thought it, it encapsulated things so well. And people are kind of astonished when they see that, but it, this is really what happened. And of course, um, this is also the age of um, British imperialism. The 18th and 19th centuries, extraordinary, you know, uh, growth, colonization, and Britain sort of becomes, uh, Shakespeare becomes held up as proof of Britain's cultural superiority and of yeah. its right to rule. Look, we have Shakespeare. You should be so lucky to be ruled by us. Um, so those, those twin elements, the kind of the religious fervor and then the nationalism, imperial element become kind of intertwined over those, over the 18th and 19th centuries um, to the point where Shakespeare becomes truly, you know, the father god of Britain, but also really of one of the father gods of Western culture. And, yeah. you know, you find him revered by the Germans and, you know, even the French sort of admit, they hate to admit it, the French don't like this, but they sort of admit the greatness of Shakespeare, you know, so he spreads, of course, globally, India and China through the, through in part, through the British Empire. Um, yeah. And so it's the religious veneration of Shakespeare in the first place that then makes questioning the authorship you know, so scandalous, even though, of course, no one is questioning the greatness of the works. And this is what's so funny. There's a conflation that happens between the plays and the person, because mm -hmm. pe people say, I love Shakespeare. What they mm -hmm. mean, of course, is I love the, the plays. And we all know that's what they mean. But then if you say, oh, it might have been someone else, they suddenly get really upset as though you're, you're taking away the works. Now this isn't rational, of course. You can, of course, this isn't rational, but it's an emotional response to, yeah. to this whole phenomenon because Shakespeare just looms so large in British culture and in Western culture. Yeah, I completely, I completely agree. It's interesting. There's there's a similar veneration um, to almost the founding fathers in America. Um, yes. In many yeah. ways, it's a symbol of a nation, almost. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. 
you see something similar with, um, you know, when, when people began su suggesting that Thomas Jefferson, the father of the Declaration of Independence, may have fathered children by his slave, Sally Hemings, not something we want to think about our, you know, one of the founding fathers, um, uh, historians rejected that. It was just too, it, that was too much, a step too far. Then DNA evidence proved that he did. And now at Monticello, which is Jefferson's home in Virginia, there's a whole exhibit on his relationship with Sally Hemings. So that's another, it's an interesting example of how these paradigm shifts happen. You know, it's, it's something, a theory is heretical. It's resisted by the sort of the, the establishment for a long time. And then a shift happens and now they say, okay, fine. <laughs> Maybe it's true. And the final phase is acceptance, isn't it? Um, typically, it's, it's, it's a blend of uh, the grieving process or the, as you say, the, the, uh, the heresy that slowly takes root, it's resisted, it's fought against, and then um, it's accepted. But the, the alternative candidate theory for Shakespeare's plays seems not to be accepted. I mean, some people won't even approach it. So we don't discuss it in um, British state schools, US high schools. It's very hard to talk about it at university level. Um, so yeah, it, there is a religious component and a, and, a, and a deeply interesting psychological component to the yeah. acceptance of an alternative theory and, and the rejection of it, I find. Yeah, you know, it is interesting. I've encountered people who say, oh, uh, you know, actually a teacher mentioned that, or yeah. actually I had a course you know, at university, there there are universities here and there that actually offer authorship seminars. Mm -hmm. I spoke to a professor at York University in Canada, a theater professor, who um, did a course on the subject and his colleagues in English sort of scoffed and said, oh, no one's going to sign up for that. And then the students loved it. And there was a waiting list every year. So you actually do find these pockets of schools and universities that teach it, or even just sometimes a Sometimes a professor will just mention it off at hand and people remember it and, and that, that it sort of sticks with them because it's such a remarkable, bizarre um, idea. But the yes, the psychological dynamics are interesting and it has to do with our emotional attachment to the traditional story of Shakespeare, I think. It's, it's a wonderful, beautiful rags to riches story, isn't it? Of this boy who sort of comes from, from nothing. His family appears to be illiterate, very humble origins, minimal, if any, education, and becomes the greatest writer in the English language. Great story, fantastic story, a kind of Cinderella story. Um, it's that rags to riches tale is one of the sort of the foundational cultural narratives that we like to tell. And you can find it in religious tales, in fairy tales, in the narratives of charismatic politicians who sort of come from nothing and then, you know, ascend to, ascend to power. And the, um, the political scientist George Lakoff calls it one of our deep narratives sort of embedded in our culture. And it's a story we like to repeat and repeat because it's, it's, a, a, it's an affirming story. It's an inspiring story. Um, and, but our emotional attachment to that narrative makes it difficult to examine critically. People like the story that they've heard. And if you try and take it away and tell them actually it might not be the right story, they get really sort of defensive of it. Hilary Mantel, she did um, a great series of lectures for the BBC on history and, you know, re the sort of rewriting, rethinking history. And she said, you know, people are attached to the first version of history that they learn. And if you try to take it away, it's as though you're taking away their childhoods. You know, it's the story they learned as children. They 
maybe their parents took them to see plays or a teacher taught them the story and they feel this like they, they don't want you to change it for them and they sort of feel like you're you're really um you're taking away something really important to them if you correct the narrative yeah it, it's a foundational narrative isn't it um yeah. very often as well um the stratfordian community for it is they um they very often accuse um people who denigrate Shakespeare and who attacked the theory of the Stratford man as um, uh, class-based. It's a snobbish manoeuvre. You know, you're, you're accused of being a snob. But obviously one of the alternative candidates is Marlowe, whose father was a cobbler and who was literally a rags-to-riches boy. Uh, came from, you know, very meagre uh, domestic beginnings and went to the King's School, probably the old, oldest school in the world, went to Cambridge and totally reinvented himself. So I, I always try, because Luckily, at the Langton, where we teach, I actually run an AQ module. So we're one of the heretic, uh, you know, fringe. Um, and I always try and accentuate the fact that we're not snobs. That's not the objection we're making. It's it's more to do with the um, the lack of sound historical evidence in favour of the uh, Stratford man. And part but of the reason of this podcast exists is because we are two working class men mm. um, who mm. are trying to avoid being seen as in some way classist neither of us come from um come from a an upper class kind of household my dad was a builder and my mum never really worked in her life and uh and so we we we're trying to combat that by saying no it's not class we don't believe that just because he grew up as um the the son of a, a merchant potentially um sure. that he couldn't have done it just that it's really unlikely that he did mm. Yeah, it's 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 a funny thing. The it's a smear that's thrown out to denigrate anyone who raises questions about the authorship, um, and sort of make people afraid of raising the question because, of course, no one wants to be attacked as a snob. But it's an ad hominem attack. It's attacking the person rather than addressing the evidence or the arguments. And I think that's quite telling. But um, it's it's really a silly argument. Walt Whitman, the poet of democracy, doubted the authorship. Um, mm -hmm. So it's really not about class and it's not about snobbery, it's about the evidence. And you raise the the example of Christopher Marlowe is a, a very good one. He came from a very similar background as Shakespeare, as you say, the son of a cobbler. But you can, you can trace the evolution of his intellectual development. He was educated at the prestigious King's School uh, on scholarship, I believe, and then he won an additional scholarship to Cambridge. Um, so you can you can understand how he evolved into the poet and playwright that he became. You can't trace that evolution with Shakespeare. So it's yeah. different. Ben Jonson's another example, um, the son of a, a bricklayer. And yeah. he went to the Westminster School, very prestigious school. And yeah. he thanked William Camden, the historian, for teaching me all that I know, he said. And then yeah. he, he, there, there's two places where he, where he thanks Camden. So there you have, again, evidence of his education yeah. and this, this fabulous tutor who mentored him um so it's it's really it is about the evidence it's not about you know um a, a snobbery thing it's people trying to understand how these works came about and there's there's a wonderful quote from a psychologist who studies um genius dean keith simonton he's the world's expert on the psychology of genius and he has said you know even even geniuses don't possess such supposedly miraculous um, qualities as as the scholars want to attribute to this Shakespeare guy, you know. And 
to him, it's really important actually to understand um, the biography and, and the truth about the author, because he says, you know, we will never really understand him until we understand the, you know, the factors, the life that contributed to this genius, you know, how it evolved. We have to understand that. So, yeah, yeah uh, the snobbery thing is a silly argument, but it, it's amazing how people continue to throw it around. Um, I think it's a little bit pathetic, really. And, and a lot of the people uh, flinging mud, uh, uh, Oxford professors and well-heeled middle-class um, gentry type folk themselves. So I always find that quite comical. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's there. It's a bit of projection in a way, yeah, perhaps. Yeah. You know, they it's the professors or um, elite figures saying, "Oh no, only we can speak with authority about Shakespeare." And really? often, often if you raise the fact that some of the great Shakespeare actors, like Sir Mark Rylance or Sir Derek Jacobi, doubt the authorship, and yeah. these are people who have spent their whole careers immersed in the plays, they'll say, "Oh, they're just they're just actors. They're just yeah. they don't know anything." <laughs> Um, bit snobbish. Well, <laughs> you know, well, exactly. I mean, Mark Rylance's Hamlet is one of the great Hamlets of all time, and Derek Jacobi. Well, need we say any more? It's Sir, Sir Derek Jacobi. So, yeah, their opinions do count, and they are valid and very important ones. Yeah. Um, um taking a slight pivot. Um, before you wrote your book, as I understand it, you produced an article for the Atlantic. Um, and I think that's on your Twitter page feed somewhere. I know I've read it. Um, and I just wanted to, uh, on the back of this discussion of psychology and heresy and reactions, um, can you explain for our listeners what happened in the wake of the, the article, which sure. seems to be a very level-headed, simple argument in favour of Amelia Bassano or Mary Sidney? Uh, what, what, what happened? The article ran four years ago, May 2019, in The Atlantic. Um, it was titled, Was Shakespeare a Woman? I, you know, I studied Shakespeare as an undergraduate and again in graduate school, I was very interested in the feminism of the plays and the female characters. The Cambridge scholar, Juliet Dusenberry says, Shakespeare's drama deserves the name feminist for in his works, the, the struggle is for women to be human in a world that declares them only female. Um, this is a, the, a kind of a, a recurring theme you find in a lot of commentary on Shakespeare. The scholar Ann Barton says Shakespeare's comedies show a, a sort of an uncanny understanding of and sympathy with women that's missing in the work of his fellow playwrights. How interesting. Orson Welles, the actor and director, said Shakespeare was clearly tremendously feminine. So, you know, the, I had sort of this question in the back of my head. How did this male 16th century playwright come to write feminist drama? Um, and it's especially weird if you look at the biography of Shakespeare because um, his own daughters appear to have been functionally illiterate. One signed with a mark, which is what you did if you couldn't sign your name, and another with a signature described by the director of the British Museum as painfully formed and probably the most she was capable of doing with a pen. Mm. That's very odd that the greatest writer in the English language um, wouldn't bother to educate his daughters it's even odder when you look at the women in the plays who are um, highly, highly intelligent. You know, they write sonnets, they read Ovid, they compose letters. In The Tempest, Prospero is incredibly proud of the fact that he has educated Miranda. So it's a mismatch. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Um, so, okay, this is, a long, this is a long background to explain why I was interested in the possibility of a woman contributing in some way to the plays. You know, we know women have often had to conceal their work um, under male names or published anonymously. And I knew I had heard that there were male 
authorship candidates, Oxford, Marlowe, Bacon. Um, but I discovered, I was very surprised to discover reading around that some people had proposed female candidates. And I thought, oh, how interesting. No, I never hear about the female candidates. Um, let's do something on them. One is Mary Sidney, who was proposed in 1931 in a kind of group authorship theory um, as you know, contributing to the female characters or helping to edit the plays. And then another is Amelia Bassano, but proposed more recently to account for some of the Italian connections in the plays and particularly a connection um, to the town of Bassano del Grappa, Italy, which seems to be um, uh, sort of referenced in Othello. Yeah. So that was that was sort of the idea behind the article. It was it was sort of edited to focus more on Amelia Bassano and the case for her. Um, and it was fascinating to see the reactions to it. It was very, very polarizing. Some people loved it. Um, other people hated it. And so I was sort of attacked for being a Shakespeare denier and um, in line with people who um, question the historical evidence of the Holocaust or the scientific um, you know, validity of vaccines compared to anti-vaxxers and Obama birthers and these really outrageous things when, look, we're just talking about the attribution of 400-year-old plays here, people, calm down, what's going on? Um, I was really, I was really shocked by that and really taken aback. It's very, it's very, I hadn't, you know, as a journalist, I was 29 when it came out. I hadn't had that experience before. It was really, it's really upsetting to be attacked that way in the public sphere. Because frankly, you worry for your reputation and your career if you're being compared to these, these horrible figures that no, you know, I didn't, don't want any comparison to. Um, so I, I stepped back from the subject for a while, but I was really interested in this reaction. And I realized that the responses had actually given me something quite interesting because, you know, why was this, why was a purely literary historical question about the attribution of some plays being um, raised into a moral problem? Because that's what those comparisons do. If you compare the authorship question to Holocaust denial or um, vaccine refusal, climate change denial is another one that gets raised. You're you're making it a moral problem, right? Mm -hmm. Question mm -hmm. because those we recognize those issues as ethically problematic. Mm -hmm. uh, so I realized that is what they are subtly doing by drawing that comparison. Why do they need feel the need to do that? Mm -hmm. Why well, make it a moral okay. problem to question mm -hmm. the authorship? Why not just, no, we have the evidence for Shakespeare, you know, what, what is going on here with this extremely elevated, um, fairly hysterical language? Yeah. And that, it was a kind of red flag to me. And that's what I wanted to investigate, how, how it became taboo, how doubting Shakespeare became a moral problem. And there, you know, they've even said so explicitly in 2011, Professor Stanley Wells, who's one of the great Shakespeare authorities in Britain said, it is immoral to question yeah. history and yeah. take away from William Shakespeare of Stratford-upon-Avon. Remarkable quote, a moral to question history when inquiry is the very basis of the historical discipline and of all academic intellectual inquiry. Um, yeah. So to me, that was that was what was fascinating. I thought, aha, this is, this is what I need to investigate yeah. and write about. How, because it's a weird thing that in the modern 21st century university system, yeah. um, for a taboo like this to persist. It's something that should have died out, you know, in the 19th century or something, but it yeah. has persisted. And I wanted to understand why. I mean, I, I'd assume as well, apart from fear on the part of your critics, there was also a good deal of kind of vested interest and 
um, stature and professional standing and reputational damage that could be inflicted by you kind of scoring hits. But of course, we, we can't prove that Shakespeare, the Stratford man, wasn't the author. It, we, we just propose that it's an improbable proposition. So it does make you wonder why there's so much paranoia in, in the halls of academe, because all those people are very established and we, we could not, we, we, we dream of, but could not take uh, Sir Stanley Wells down. I mean, I think we probably dream of it, but, you know, he's, he, he's insurmountable. He, he's just written a book called What, was Shakespeare, what Shakespeare Was Really Like, and he can, he can do that with a straight face, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's a very, um, that's a funny book. That's funny that you mentioned it. But look at the reviews that have been written about that book. Emma Smith, a professor at Oxford, in her review, I think of the Telegraph, noted that Stanley Wells, um, uh, you know, does a kind of sleight of hand with the facts. Okay, so that's a nice way of saying he's not entirely accurate in this book. Um, and what else? There's a lot of uh, sort of, it's clouded with supposition, The Guardian said. And the, and the portrait he puts on the cover is a portrait of Sir Thomas Overbury, not of Shakespeare. Um, so people who know, know that that book is not a very good book, but the general public eats up those books of Shakespeare because, uh, you know, they love, they love those sort of fictional fun biographies. Um, but back to the issue of, of vested interests. Yep. There, there is a lot of ego at play. I think that is true. And you find that, I would say, in, in all camps mm -hmm. regarding the authorship question. And mm -hmm. it comes down to the fact that people don't like to think that they might be wrong. You mm -hmm. know, whether you believe it's Oxford or Marlowe or Bacon or Shakespeare of Stratford, no mm -hmm. one wants to say, oh, maybe I'm wrong. So what happens is people um, defend their candidate and their belief to the hilt and get really emotional about it and look for evidence to support their belief. And that becomes, you know, it creates a kind of confirmation bias where they're maybe, they're not looking at the evidence that um, conflicts with their belief and they're searching out arguments to, to prove that they were right. And, you know, it's just a human dynamic. You see this at any um, dinner table fight you get into with a relative about religion or politics or policy, you know, people just, people wanna be right and they will look for, things to prove that they are right it's it's a it's a human um very human flaw about in the way that we operate um but it is really interesting to see how it comes into play here and you know the more people try to defend their initial belief the, the more they get dug in and the more emotional they get about it and then when you get to these professors you know they've written whole books whole biographies on Shakespeare their whole reputations are staked on their theory of the authorship so you know they can't it's very difficult for them to now say, oh, well, okay, that might, might not be the case. Maybe it was, you know, it's, it's very awkward. Um, but it is interesting that you will find some professors acknowledging that. When I spoke to Stephen Greenblatt, uh, you know, famous Harvard professor who wrote a very famous biography of Shakespeare, he, I was surprised that he acknowledged, well, he said sort of about all things, you know, to do with attribution. He said, there's always some room for doubt. And um, he he wanted to know more about the other theories. One thing that's interesting is that often you find these Shakespeare scholars, they actually haven't read the theories for the other candidates just because they assume that they're right and there's no question. So they don't even know kind of what they're arguing against. Mm -hmm. It's a funny situation. But, um, and then there are other, you know, another professor contacted me after I wrote the Atlantic article and he said, yes, of course, Shakespeare could have been a pen name or a scam or a committee of Bacon, Marlowe, Oxford. Um, but he, to him, it didn't really matter. It's the plays that matter. Study the plays. 
And that's actually the thing with most, the vast majority of Shakespeare scholars are not biographers. They don't write about the biography. They're literary critics and they analyze the plays and they're not, they're not thinking about who wrote them. That's not, they don't really see that as their, um, their role. Some of them are just not interested in that. Marjorie Garber, another professor I interviewed in the book, um, you know, she just said, I'm not interested in the biography. I'm interested in the plays. I'm interested in the characters. I'm interested in performances of the plays and interpretations of the plays. Um, but she, and she just sort of put up blinders. She wasn't going to go there. Yeah. And I was a little like, I, I was a little, um, what's the word? I, you know, I found that odd because she's devoted her entire career to the study of these works, which she clearly admires so much. How can you not have a little bit of curiosity about where they came from and the life of the person and their experiences that shaped these works. It, it seems to me a bit disingenuous to just sort of, it's a, to put up that um, kind of wall. You know, and so I said to her, look, um, you care so much about the interpretation of the plays. If it came out that they were by someone else, wouldn't that affect your interpretation? And she sort of said, well, you know, I think I rethink my interpretation of the plays all the time. And I, I, she said, I don't think of them as coming from a person. I think of them as a text. And I sort of pushed back. Well, look, you know, text doesn't appear out of thin air. Um, so we had this exchange, which I think it's, it's actually the final chapter of the book. I hope readers will find it interesting. But it's a, it's a weird situation where some professors just, they just won't go there. They don't want to talk about the authorship. It's the plays that matter. Um, but it's kind of tell, I think, that there is something a little off with the biography. You know, otherwise they wouldn't have to do that. Mm. And even even the professors who really defend the traditional narrative, they will often sort of end their argument by saying, oh, who cares about Shakespeare? We have the works. Let's yep. leave them off stage. Um, yep. I, I got a, a few reviews to that effect. Um, and it's sort of the last line of defense for these scholars. Know, they just sort of, sort of go, oh, oh, who cares? Well, you're a scholar of the subject. It is your job to care. Other people don't have to care, but it is your job to care. Um, so I think that it's it's a kind of giveaway that they know it's that they they know that the traditional narrative is is pretty weak, and so yeah. all they do at that point is is try to brush it aside. Yeah, yeah try, just... try to almost um, uh, mitigate the damage by saying it doesn't really matter. Um, mm. Okay, so we are running very low on time, um, so I will apologise. I'm going to have to um, start to bring us to an end there. Um, I'm going to put in my own praise for the book. Um, the full title is Shakespeare Was a Woman and Other Heresies. Um, is by Elizabeth Wingler, who is on screen now. And um, I had listened to the fantastic audiobook version uh, narrated by Eunice Wong. Um, my only complaint was her pronunciation of the word Derby, but um, <laughs> I'll, I'll live with it. Um, but it's a very, very good version as well. If you uh, if you don't manage to sit down and pick up a book uh, very often, um, Elizabeth, uh, feel free to plug anything else you are doing or any social media channels that you would like to. Um, if you have anything along those lines. Oh, um, I'm not plugging anything right now. I'm delighted to have <laughs> talked with you. Thanks you. Thank you for your questions, and um, I hope people enjoy the book and buy it for your friends for Christmas. Yeah, please do. We, we've ordered several copies for our school library and they are actually in constant demand. They are, yes. I've, I've, for my, my AQ community are armed with copies of, uh, of, of the Winkler. You, you have become the Winkler, so they are armed with copies of... of uh, the Winkler, of your, oh my gosh. The Winkler, yes. <laughs> yes you are the, yeah. um, um, thank you so much for talking. 
That's, it's a pleasure. And this, this Joe won't like this because it's it could be a long-winded reply, but I just wanted to get your opinion on um, Alexander War and the, the Oxford argument because uh, I've had quite a few interactions with Baconians um, on Twitter and they, they, they keep accusing me of uh, privileging De Vere. And I got the impression that when you met Alexander War, um, this could be a wrong impression, a takeaway from the book, but that he was maybe more convincing than Ros Barber on Marlowe more convincing than the Bacon theory. So are you, could, could we pin you to De Vere or are you just too? I shall not be pinned, I'm afraid. Right, <laughs> um, right on look, Of course, there's this rush to want to put a, like a different candidate in the in the empty throne, right? Yeah. You've unseated the incumbent, Who who's the real author? I, I specifically did not want to argue for any candidate in the book. I yeah. felt like my position was a journalist reporting on the controversy. I've reported on the different theories through my interviews with um, their advocates. And I really wanted to leave it to the reader to make up their own mind about the subject because part of the fun of this whole thing is how um, how it kind of messes with your mind and how we, how, how we construct the past through our own narratives and our own subjective lens and biases. So I wanted the reader to to grapple with the problem and struggle with the questions and the inconsistencies without me telling them what to think. Uh, personally, I think yeah, you did a fantastic job of it. I I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, I'm enjoying the book. Um, and and I know Christian has loved it so much that he's passed on a copy to everyone he knows, has ever known, ever will know, <laughs> and has copies waiting for anyone he happens to meet in the street to to okay, hand to well, them. Yep, I'd love to hear that. Thank you so much. And it's thank you so much for joining us. Um, we really do appreciate your time. We know you're busy and, and um, it's, it's wonderful to have you on. Thank you so much. Yep. It's been a pleasure. And good luck with your next project. Thank you. Whatever that may be. And on and farewell. Thank you. Oh, you haven't got your bell, have you, Christian? You can't ring the bell to, to end the episode. Uh, I'm afraid I don't have a bell on this occasion, but we can dub one in later. We'll, we'll dub one in later. Thank you, Elizabeth. Have a great rest of your day.